Is learning language an inconvenient barrier or a gift? God is the first speaker. That language, as we know it, is a gift of God. So when he makes Adam and Eve, then he's able to speak to them right away. The answer to the question of language. Plus, how should missionaries approach apologetics? All with theologian, author, and philosopher Dr. Vern Poitras today on the Missions Podcast. Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. My name is Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Mobilization for ABWE International, joined once again, as always, on this fine morning by Scott Dunford, West Coast Mobilizer for ABWE and Lead Church Planter of Redeemer Church in Fremont, California. And Scott, we are here recording on a Monday morning. And uh, right around the time that our last episode just dropped, talking about theology and culture. And uh, I actually, you know what I did, Scott? I actually went back and listened to our episode. I don't usually, I, I confess, I don't usually listen to episodes all the way through, but uh, uh, I enjoyed that last conversation. I, I think you did too. Well, I did, but I'm I'm more excited about getting a real uh, theologian on, on with us to correct our errors. So Sure. Yes. Great. Well, who are we talking to, Scott? Well, we're excited to have with us Dr. Vern Poitras from Westminster Theological Seminary. Got a couple of doctorates, at least a couple, uh, maybe more than that, from Harvard and from the University of Stellenbosch. But he's been teaching there in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania for a number of years, almost four decades, author of numerous books, articles on biblical interpretation and a very active blog site that is well regarded. We're excited to have you join us. So thank you for joining our show today. Thank you for inviting me. Dr. Poitras, I had the uh, privilege of meeting you um, at uh, Westminster there when I came out not that long ago um, for the missions group that uh, is there on campus. And I personally was super grateful uh, to see uh, the heart that you and your wife, the other Dr. Poitras, have for missions. And uh, maybe just share a little bit with our audience about that. I'm happy to say something. Uh, my wife, before we were married, was a missionary in Taiwan uh, with the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, and she learned Mandarin. And she was there two years. Uh, but uh, circumstances required her, her family circumstances required her to come back. And eventually she ended up uh, studying for a doctorate at Westminster Seminary. That's where we met. So then we we had children and she was uh, at home until they were gone. <laughs> and uh, uh, through college, even we were, you know, we were obviously cheering them and, and trying to counsel them through that time. But then she uh, asked, well, you know, what's next for God for me? And there was some struggle as there is for many people who are reached the empty nesting sage. Mm -hmm. uh, but she was invited where well, she got a doctorate in Reformation uh, history and theology. She was invited to teach uh, a modular course in Taipei, Taiwan. And it revived her, the love, which had been sort of there in the background, but uh, mm -hmm. had not, you know, been stirred up to flame, as it were. It revived that, and, and she, she got off the plane to greet me. She said, the first thing, I want to go back. <laughs> 
she oh, wow. really loves the people of Taiwan. She loves the Chinese people generally, but but Taiwan is you know the special focus. So I decided you know we we should both go. There's a seminary there, China Reform Theological Seminary, that is a really solid seminary in terms of Bible teaching and theology. It's the best, we think, in the whole Chinese language world. So we've both been back uh, again and again. And uh, the teaching there uh, is done line by line translation. Uh, Quite a few of the people understand English, but when you're doing theology issues in English, the vocabulary can be more challenging. And of course, even if their English is very good, they have to think about how is this going to come out in Chinese? Uh, Because, you know, that's where their ministry is. It's an exciting place because there's complete freedom of religion in the whole uh, island of Taiwan, uh, more so in some respects than the United States, amazingly. Mm. And uh, wow. it, But it's also a gateway to the Chinese language uh, people uh, throughout the world, what, what I call the dispersion, because there are Chinese in Thailand and Malaysia and Indonesia mm-hmm. and Canada and U.S., of course, as well. But uh, and then, of course, the Chinese mainland, uh, 1.3 billion people. And we've had a number of students in our classes uh, from the mainland, uh, though they, you know, th- there's special concerns uh, with regard to, you know, how they fail, how they will fare. But but we decided that we would rather give our input. We we love the Chinese people. We'd rather give, rather give what input and time and energy we have to high-level theological education where we're, our vision for ourselves is teaching people who will teach people who will teach people. <laughs> so mm. it's, yeah. you know, we're training at a, at a fairly advanced level at China Reform Theological Seminary in order that those people can function, let's say, in underground seminaries in the mainland, as well as places like Singapore and Indonesia and other places where there are significant Chinese language populations. So that's fascinating. And, uh, you know, certainly as someone who's spent time in Asia and uh, studied Mandarin myself, uh, I, I I feel that that passion and that love. Now, you've you've studied as well a lot of things. Um, I know in in the past you you uh, studied linguistics at the Summer Institute of Linguistics, uh, but you've you've got you know a, a wide range of of studies, both formally and informally. You've written on science and logic, philosophy, hermeneutics, all sorts of theological topics. I feel like you have a book almost on every area of theology that could possibly be written about. Could you describe, if you were to try to sum up your mission in life and what unites all these pursuits, uh, what what theme do you see in your life as you look at your ministry? Why, why such a, a wide range of, of writings and studies? That's a good question. May I backtrack a little bit to the Chinese people to mention the fact that there's something like uh, 20, 30 uh, Chinese uh, people in West, at Westminster Seminary, where I teach, 
uh, wow. who are students uh, who are from mainland or from um, Taiwan, as well as Chinese Americans. So it, the Chinese Americans, it would make it more like 50 maybe. So we have a considerable Asian population. We have Koreans as well. So we're delighted to uh, have some ministry to Chinese and Korean people here. I mentioned the Koreans because Korean culture is quite close to Chinese culture. And my wife and I understand that culture a good deal. So we're able to empathize with the people, but particularly because my wife speaks Mandarin, she can get heart-to-heart conversations oh, with yeah. people, which others cannot, and I cannot uh, I have, you know, a few words of Mandarin to be polite, but uh, I, I can't really speak it. Uh, so going back to your question now, uh, it's, it's interesting how I feel. I feel the Lord has worked in my life and has given me ideas that have led to books, but I didn't quite know why <laughs> it just <laughs> happened. Uh, and I think that's so with many people's lives, you know, you, you can't just plan your life out beforehand. You got to walk step by step. And sometimes there are surprises in that. Uh, mm. I wanted to be, I was a Christian from fairly early age. I wanted to be a college teacher of mathematics. I love mathematics and I wanted to be on a secular campus and help out the Christian groups uh, in that kind of setting. But things happened. Uh, it's a long story. I ended up uh, teaching here at Westminster Theological Seminary. I've been here 43 years now. Hmm. And it's only recently that I figured out what what my is the meaning of all of this, <laughs> <laughs> because nearly everything I've written is related to hermeneutics, principles mm. for interpreting the Bible, mm. and that hermeneutics mm. extends in my mind out not just to very mechanical things of how to, you know, uh, use a Greek lexicon that kind of thing. It extends out to how do we, from the worldview that the Bible sets forth, how do we uh, interact with various academic uh, areas mm -hmm. such as linguistics and logic and mathematics? Because I have a background in logic and mathematics, I was particularly interested in those areas and my undergraduate work was also not only a math major, but in science. So I'm interested in science and Bible questions and have been for over 50 years. So, the, the, you know, there's a number of things and they look very different, but actually it's all related to how do you interpret the Bible in a way that, that honors the fact that it has implications for mm -hmm every academic field whatsoever in my judgment. Well, I love the way you bring out in all your writings. I mean, even the fact of what is the meaning of mathematics, uh, the, the, the God centeredness of, of every area of human endeavor. And certainly that 
would relate to this area of language that's so important to the missionary work. You've, you've already mentioned how important your wife's uh, Mandarin speaking has been in her teaching and her able to, ability to connect with certain students. You, you address this in one of your books that we found fascinating. In the beginning was the word. That's the name of the book. Um, and in that you make the case that language itself only makes sense in light of the Trinity. Can you explain why? And I'd like to, we just kind of want to dive into some of those, uh, down, down those, some of those trails a little bit. What, what about the Trinity uh, helps us understand language? Right. Uh, it's a good question. I wrote the book, I may say, for both positive and negative reasons. The <laughs> negative reason is that that I think there's a lot of interest in language and uh, postmodernism or some phases of it have become convinced that the limits of language are the limits of our world. And if understood uh, in a bad way, that can lead to to overthrowing any concept of divine revelation and divine speech. Uh, and I think it's due to the fact that it's a man-centered view of language is in back of it. It's that we as human beings construct languages and use them for whatever reasons we want, but we are the ones who are in charge. But if you think about it, Nobody has invented a language from scratch because you grew up with one. <laughs> you know, there, are, there is one at least invented language, namely Esperanto, but it's heavily borrowing <laughs> from mm. a lot of other languages. So it isn't from, from nothing. Mm. Uh, and w even when there's, uh, there's pidgin and Creole languages as sort of mix, it's no one person that does it. It's it's something that I believe is a gift from God. And you see that in the teaching of Genesis 1 and 2, where the first speaker is God before human beings even exist. He says, let there be light. And there was light. And he says, let there be a separation between the waters and the waters. And it goes on. There's a, quite a few speeches that God makes before he comes to a kind of central and climactic uh, moment in the sixth day where he consults with himself, let us. So there's divine speech. It sounds like there's divine speech internally, even let us make man in our image. Now, that's a mysterious thing because uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is not fully revealed until you come to the New Testament. But I think that's actually a lot more important than many people have seen to understand that God is the first speaker and that that language, as we know it, is a gift of God. So mm. when he makes Adam and Eve, then he's able mm. to speak to them right away. Uh, and they and he gives, of course, the command not to eat of the of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There needs to be specific articulation in order for Adam to understand the specificity, this is not just some vague thing that God is your creator and therefore you have to honor him. It is very specific and it takes language to specify that. And I'm convinced that even if Adam had not fallen, uh, there would have been ongoing um, verbal communication back and forth between God and Adam, so that you have to say, God is 
uh, participant in the language community, every language community in the world, in fact, uh, he's a participant because he's mastered all these languages because they are all gifts, uh, even in their multiplicity. Mm. They are gifts to the various tribes and and ethnic groups of the world. Uh, they change over time, but that too is in his sovereign control. Of course, it's influenced by the decisions of human beings and and the way we communicate. But that's not something that takes God by surprise. So again, I'm coming back to God as a source of language. Mm. But there's one more piece to it that's even more striking and more mysterious. And that it comes from John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the next verses go on to talk about that the Word was the source Oh, it's through the word that the world was created and that life is given to the world. So the background is Genesis 1. And of course, the opening words in the beginning also allude then to Genesis 1. So behind the specific Mm -hmm. speeches that God makes in Genesis 1, like let there be light, is this eternal speech of God, which involves the mystery of two persons, not only God, but specifically God the Father, but the word that is, we usually speak of him as the son of God. And uh, John 1 goes on to talk about the son becoming incarnate and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we know that this is Jesus, but that Jesus not only always existed, but he existed with God in the, in, uh, as, uh, in the mystery of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit is sometimes represented, let's say, in um Ezekiel 37 is sometimes represented as like the breath of God. So that too is a kind of linguistic analogy. And that explains why language is not merely human invention. It starts with God, not only God speaking, but God speaking eternally uh, among the persons of the Trinity. And then it's out of that fullness of speech that there are specific speeches that bring the world into existence and specific speeches uh, such as uh, let us make man our image that are behind who we are as a human race. So that I think it's very important because the mentality of modern linguistics too often is it's a merely human thing. It's a merely a construct. And so if God were somehow or other to use it, then his infinity would be captured by our finiteness and it wouldn't be any longer genuine revelation. But that thinking already presupposes that we know what language is, that we know that we're in charge of it rather than that God is in charge of it. I think that's incredibly helpful for missionaries because the temptation is to just view differences in language as a barrier to overcome ever since the Tower of Babel. And really what you're saying is that language is it's a part of who God is. And you even see that in the relationships that exist within the persons of the Trinity. 
But to go further, your, your book in the beginning was the word also, uh, you say language is not only capable of expressing knowledge of God. And so you kind of laid that out for us. It is really possible to know God through the language, through the words, human words, but the words that he's inspired about himself. So not only is it possible to know about God and have true knowledge, but you actually state that God designed language specifically for this purpose. So language is a gift specifically so that we would know God. Um, what would be some of the implications of that for missionaries? Yeah, well, it, it stresses the importance of learning the target language you're going to, but also having the confidence that in any language of the world, because they're all gifts of God, in any language, you can communicate who God is and what he's done in Christ. It will take some work. And that uh, leads to uh, one of the topics in, in my book on language is, is the fall into sin and the fact that that affects language. But it doesn't mean that language is incapable of communicating about God anymore. The, the corruption is the corruption that starts with human heart and enters into the human mind. So that, for instance, we have in ancient Greece the idea of many gods. And the word God, in Greek it's theos, becomes corrupted and used in the, the context of polytheism. So there's Zeus and there's Apollo and there's uh, all this multiplicity of gods. Uh, but it's interesting that when the Jews... Uh, were were uh, challenged to translate the Old Testament into Greek because their children, Greek was becoming the primary language. They, we think that it took place in Alexandria in Egypt, which was dominated by the Greek language at the time. And the Jews needed to communicate the, the true word of God in Greek and not simply in Hebrew. Then one of the prime challenges was how are you going to render the Hebrew words for God? And the answer is they took this very word, theos, which, you know, the lexicon will tell you, well, it means God. But the context in Greek thinking mm -hmm. is these many gods. But you go ahead and use it anyway, because as people read through, let's say, Genesis 1, they will see that this God, they start out with the idea, well, mm -hmm. you know, which God are you talking about? Well, it's the God who made every, the world and everything in it. <laughs> right? So you restore the concept of monotheism and you restore it. You, language has that capability from God, even when there is corruption from sin and from sinful ideas, there can be a restoration and a proclamation of the truth that straightens that out. And it takes time and resources to do. But I think that's an, a key aspect for missionaries. Mm -hmm. But another key aspect I'd mentioned, it's true. You mentioned the Tower of Babel and the multiplicity of languages derives from that uh, horrible event of rebellion. But as usual, God brings good out of evil. 
And the goodness is that now in a redemptive order, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ can be displayed mm-hmm. in every tribe and people and tongue, that is every language. And there's a glorious multiplicity mm-hmm. in the church. Now, there can be a contentious multiplicity because of sin, right? People fighting against one another, people hating other ethnic groups, uh, all kinds of things. Although the origin of that is not simply that Mm -hmm. there are multiple cultures and multiple languages, but it's in the human heart (laughs) to the temptation Mm -hmm. to hate the outsider. But the fact is, in the church, there is a reconciliation in Christ so that people learn to love one another. It's not always easy. And you can see this struggle taking place in the first century church, primarily with the issue of Jew and Gentile. That was a biggest ethnic Mm. division of all time because it had a religious root in a distinction which God himself put in place. You know, the Jews only were the the chosen people of God through the Old Testament period. So it was a shocking thing for them, for the Gentiles to be included on an equal basis. But of course, that was in God's plan from the beginning. It's there in the Old Testament. If you read the right verses, the Jews should have been paying attention to that. But when it came, it was still very hard. And yet you can see in Christ, and through the leadership of of the apostles whom Jesus inspired, that the church is able to work through that process and to do some painful things. It's when we mustn't pretend it's too easy. Uh, they were able to do some painful things that nevertheless came uh, to the point where Jews and and non-Jews alike could participate mm-hmm. on an equal basis in the church. Well, that's the vision that is now multiplied with many languages and many cultures uh, as we're seeing the missionary movement throughout the world. Well, that's helpful. And want to take a quick break real quick, and we will be right back with Dr. Vern Poitras. Police in Santiago, Chile, captured Cesar during an armed robbery. After the hardened gangster spent some time in solitary confinement, he emerged in a rage, and rival inmates were ready to kill him, too. Then he heard, Cesar, God is calling you. A group of Christian inmates encircled him to protect him from the other gangsters. The sudden act of compassion changed his heart. Soon he surrendered to Christ. Now he's training to become a pastor of a church plant in Santiago. But like many Latin American pastors, he's desperate for the theological education we take for granted. That's when an ABWE missionary met him and offered to pay for him to attend ABWE's seminary in Chile. Now he's only got two years left until he graduates and enters pastoral ministry. He doesn't talk about his testimony much. He only exudes kindness and warmth. ABWE is committed not just to reaching the least reached, but training national leaders. A gift to the Global Gospel Fund impacts the whole mission. Become a partner today at abwe.org slash global gospel fund.
training is the biggest common denominator in people who make it through the first two years and people who don't. Brooks Buser, president of Radius International. Radius is a 10-month intensive training school that trains students who are going to church plants among the last 3,100 unreached groups left in the world. The driving burden is really to see every language group reached with a really strong, lasting New Testament church. Okay, so why should someone attend Radius International? I would say someone should attend Radius because we see missionaries that don't make it because they weren't expecting the challenges that were coming at them. Everyone's going to hit hurdles. It's what you do when you hit those hurdles. If you've had those challenges at Radius, you get to see those challenges. You get to experience some of them in the environment in Tijuana. And you also have capable staff that have a background and can guide you through a lot of those hurdles. And so you tend to do much better. I'm one of the team leaders. He says there's just something different about Radius graduates. They understand and they get through things a lot faster and they do better on the field when the hard times come. What's your final challenge? Go to radiusinternational.org, radiusinternational.org. So we're hitting all around this this topic, but I think this is really an important question that, that I don't think we can hit too often. Um, but I want to hear it from your perspective. Why then, uh, in light of what you've taught us about, about language and culture and the relationship of language to, to God himself and our ability to communicate uh, to God and with God, uh, why is learning and understanding language and culture so critical to the task of a missionary? Yeah. Well, I talked about the Gentile and Jew. And even in that one case, you can see that they had to take into account cultural differences and to some extent language differences, although Greek would had become kind of the common language, the trade language, uh, so that there was not that much uh, need for uh, to think about translation, but certainly there were cultural differences and you easily make mistakes. You easily step on people's feet, uh, their toes, I should say, uh, and make cultural errors that are deeply offensive. And that had to be negotiated in terms of, for instance, the issue of eating meat, because Outside of Palestine, a lot of the meat that sold in the meat markets had first the the, the proprietors, the, the salespeople had first offered a portion to idols. So there were some Jews who felt we can't buy any of this meat. We can't eat any of the meat, whereas the Gentiles, they'd been doing it all along. So for them, it wasn't an issue so then you got to negotiate that and understand each side has got to understand the viewpoint of the other and reach some kind of practice where the things that are most offensive are, you say, for the sake of love, I'm not going to do that, even though it's not morally wrong, but I'm not going to do it. There's a concrete illustration in in 1 Corinthians uh, eight and 10 with respect to eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols. If you know that has been sacrificed, if somebody tells you, then you should not eat it. Uh, And there's nothing morally wrong with it, right? It's meat. It's a created thing that, right? That is one of the good gifts of God. 
but you shouldn't eat because you offend somebody else's conscience whose conscience is weak and who if the, if that person ate they would feel i'm violating um the, the lord's uh, call to holiness i'm participating uh, with idols and there's some other arguments that go there too my wife actually had a situation like that and when she was in taiwan she went to a, a friend's home and the mother had prepared food that's a big thing for taiwan uh, but the daughter who was a friend of hers said well this has been offered in sacrifice and uh, my wife knew this is this verse, this instruction of Paul is still relevant. So she couldn't eat it. The mother was greatly embarrassed and everybody was embarrassed. She finally found some peanuts that she hadn't offered to idols. And Diane was, my wife was able to eat them. And But it's, you, you can see that the reality of we've got to think in terms of what things mean in other cultures, or we needlessly do offensive things uh, in in uh, towards those other countries. There's another thing in uh, um, uh, people claim that it's changing, but in Chinese culture, uh, decades ago, it was improper for a woman mm -hmm. to uh, show a bear shoulder because that was the sexiest part of her body from the Chinese cultural point of view. Well, Diane kept that completely consistently because she knew, well, it's not no big deal for an American, but she knew it meant something different for the Chinese. And she advised one of her missionary colleagues, a man who was, who was, going around with this language helper who had bare shoulders. And she said, you can't do that. This, this is offensive. Everybody will think that this woman is your mistress. And he just laughed at it. And it was appalling because he was ruining the testimony to the gospel without even knowing it. Right. He he wasn't doing anything morally wrong in terms of, you know, absolute standards of the Bible. But culturally, it communicated something that was completely devastating to his testimony. Wow. Well, what would you say then about because let's face it, we live in an age of instant results. We live in the microwave generation and there's so much pragmatism in the North American church that would say, let's find ways of focusing as much as possible on short-term and explosive um, growth and, and multiplied impact and, and partnership to the point where um, we don't want to place an emphasis on staying long-term and learning language and culture. So how would you encourage someone who has a heart for ministry, cross-cultural ministry especially, uh, but they're discouraged by the difficulty of learning a foreign language uh, or a biblical language for that matter. Yeah, people's heart is related to their mother tongue. We we don't realize how central this gift of language is to our very being, how much communion with other people depends on verbal expression that's of course not the only thing but it's really important and and my wife's experience again is 
uh, Chinese people will open their hearts. She's one of them once she's speaking Mandarin. Uh, and you just can't do that uh, with a short term or with with uh, a smattering of, uh, you know, a few polite words uh, in the language. Of course, you know, you do what you can if it's a more short term thing. And I don't want to uh, pretend that short-term ministries can't help, uh, but the the biggest needs I see are for evangelism of new groups, and there are lots of those groups, but often they're best reached by people who are nearby culturally and linguistically, mm. not by us Americans. And I've even had some experience of counseling people and saying, oh, I want to do pioneer evangelism in China. And said, yeah, but you don't know Mandarin. <laughs> and, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, you'll never know Mandarin as well as a native speaker. What about the people there who already are culturally adjusted and linguistically adjusted? And they'll go to these minority groups. There must be a certain amount of language learning, but it's often mm -hmm. more dialects of Chinese. There's a certain amount of that. But he says those people will be tremendously more effective than you will ever be. But they need to be trained. So that ups, you know, that shifts the focus. Some, and you're saying one mm -hmm. of the big needs, I'm convinced in many areas, is solid theological education for pastors and leaders and evangelists who themselves are already in the culture, who have much more ability than we do, but they need the grounding in scripture and in theology, which will deepen their ability. And, you know, sometimes I, I get what you're saying that sometimes you think, well, let's go and, you know, we'll, we'll distribute tracks or we'll, we'll have some kind of camp program or we'll do something quick, but where are those gonna, people going to go when you're gone? There has to be a building of a solidity of a church. Mm -hmm. That can that Christianity is not only an individual matter of individuals being saved. It is, of course, that, but it's a matter of a community that is gathered in the name of Christ and where people can support one another. That's the fuller purpose of God. And the Chinese church survived Mao Zedong and the Cultural Revolution, a lot of persecution. But there were heresies and other things that crept into that situation because the people were not well grounded. They didn't have theological seminaries. They didn't have the resources to do theological education and the grace of God. They survived in an amazing way, but not without cost. And they needed more theological education than they were able realistically to get. Well, to the degree that situation like that is more open now than maybe it was in the past, then you say, look, when there's opportunity, let's give the people more resources so that their own churches and their own preaching and their own uh, counseling can be grounded in the scripture and in robust theology more deeply than it is. I honestly believe that sound doctrine is good for people. 
it helps people in their Christian life. And that sometimes is not understood very well. You know, you become a Christian and say, well, then now my job is to evangelize the non-Christians. Well, that's one aspect of it. But your job is also to grow. You know, when Jesus gives the Great Commission, right, what does it say? It says, go and make disciples of all nations, right? So the disciple, you can think, oh, well, that means uh, giving them enough so that they believe in Christ. But it goes on to saying, baptizing them. So that's a churchly kind of thing. And then teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Well, that aspect is sometimes, I think, left out. And that teaching process is an extended process, if you think right. about it, because it's the what Jesus yeah. as Lord has given us to do involves all every area of life. It doesn't stop with a few simple principles. So... That means I believe that theological education is one of the greatest needs in many of these cultures. So if you were, if you have, you know, a young person come up to you, which I'm sure you have lots of occasion to do and they say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about just skipping seminary and just going right to the mission field, Uh, you know, time's ticking and people are dying and I just need to get there. Um, what would your advice be? What kind of training do you think missionaries need to pursue before they leave? And I, you know, I I understand I'm talking to a guy with multiple doctorates and a lot of education, but, but uh, do you think there's a, that the lack of serious theological study and preparation is hurting missionary efforts? What, what would your advice be to that young man or woman that's coming to you saying, Hey, I just want to get to the mission field as fast as possible. Well, I think the first thing would be, I sympathize right the, the the plight of the lost is truly desperate and i think the second thing would be what has god made you to be where are your gifts where's your heart not everybody has to go to seminary and i'm thinking of missionary aviators missionaries who run printing equipment to print bibles and other literature uh people who are mechanics, right? People who are, who are good at keeping books. The missionary enterprise needs all kinds of people. But the heart of it is still saying, you know, we need to have sound doctrine and we can help people without sort of just directly transposing all the Western culture. We can help people grow in that sound doctrine. So I want to say, think about the fact that the long, you got to think long run and not only short run. And uh, I'm told that Billy Graham, some like something like mid career or three quarters of the way through his career, he was asked, what would you do differently if you had to do it all over again? And he said, I would have studied longer before I started. <laughs> That's a pretty amazing statement, <laughs> given that Billy Graham is, of course, his gifts is evangelism. He's tremendously gifted. Indeed. But he saw over time that the depth and quality of his evangelistic work was enhanced rather than, <laughs> as it were, curtailed by uh, studies that he could mm. have done. 
Well, so on that note, you know, Westminster Theological Seminary, your institution obviously has a uh, an historically honored and well-respected tradition of serious theological thought and reflection. And I'm thinking in particular in the realm of apologetics. So I think it's important for missionaries to prepare in the realm of apologetics as well. I remember when I was visiting the campus and we had the privilege of interacting um, that uh, we were inside Van Til Hall. And so thinking of uh, Cornelius Van Til um, and for some of our listeners who might not be familiar with all these names and movements, you have presuppositional apologetics, which is basically coming at apologetics, not first with evidences or debating, you know, what is the likelihood that um, the world created itself or that uh, Christ fulfilled all of these messianic prophecies, right? All, all of these sorts of very in the weeds, evidence-based sorts of argumentation, presuppositionalism would come in at it first and focus on a person's foundations, their presuppositions, their assumptions. And particularly with regard to engaging atheists, um, it's important for Christians to to lovingly but, but boldly uh, say to the atheist, your feet are firmly planted in midair, right? You don't have an objective basis for knowledge if you live in a universe of blind, pitiless indifference. So my question, uh, while you're on that note of seeing missionaries that are really well-formed theologically, um, would be what's the role of that type of apologetic approach um, for the missionary, realizing that you might not be debating uh, a hostile Western or, or postmodern uh, type of atheist that you'd be likely to meet on the street somewhere in America or, or Canada or somewhere in Europe, uh, but you might be debating someone of another religious system entirely. How could someone take that sort of very serious, sturdy, grounded approach to apologetics to the mission field with them? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think one of the observations is everybody is already religious. They're already committed either to serve the true God through Christ or in rebellion against mm. him so that there's no neutral area of, oh, the poor, innocent people who have never heard the gospel. Well, it's it's important that they hear the gospel, but they're not innocent. Mm. <laughs> they're already, like everybody around the globe, mm. they're already set in rebellion against God, and they already have a worldview that is in, as it were, offering something religious in competition with what the Bible says belongs to the true God and the world that he's made. So actually apologetics is valuable, even though Westminster Seminary, frankly, because we exist in the United States, we're paying more attention on the average to American and European kinds of alternate worldviews, but the principles are applicable all the way across the globe. And, and it's valuable then to think in terms of alternate worldviews. That doesn't mean we don't use evidence, but it means evidence is always going to be understood against a background uh, where, you know, it does or does not make sense. Uh, depending on where, uh, what kind of culture and uh, worldview perspective a right. person is coming from. Very helpful. 
just want to give you a chance to, to share your heart a little bit. Um, yeah, maybe just you could just share to students who may be listening. Um, what would be your heart in seeing students, whether at Westminster or uh, in school somewhere else, or maybe those who have just graduated from college or seminary to take missions seriously? Um, could you just give a little bit of a of a challenge? Explain your heart uh, to students to think think deeply about uh, the needs around the world and the cause of of Christ there. Uh, well, I think I would say my own heart <laughs> is oriented to the greatness of God. Uh, th there's there's nothing more nourishing spiritually as well as is contact with reality to grasp the greatness and majesty and goodness and justice and all those aspects of who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. If people are just motivated by humanitarian reasons of people are suffering other places, people are going to hell, even that can be still humanitarian. I I want to rescue people from hell, but that will not last. It doesn't have the grounding of understanding the glory of who God is and that you want, because Christ is so glorious, you want to see people everywhere, see that glory and bow the knee to him and be transformed into his image. Because when they become like him as Christian believers, right, they, their light it shines like the, you know, the, the city on a hill, right? Jesus talks about, let your light so shine before men. That light is a light of the blessing of God and the majesty of who God is and people. Then other people can be drawn to that. So I think to start with the greatness of God is the ultimate motivation for why we want to see people from every tribe and tongue and nation come to worship the lamb and to bow before his throne. And of course, we're guaranteed that that's going to happen. That's mm. the vision in the book of Revelation. If we can be instrumental on in that, what higher privilege is there? So grateful to hear you articulate that. I think it's so easy to get into our theological ivory towers that we forget um, that this is all happening in the context of a God that is drawing all peoples and nations and kindreds together into the church, into Christ's kingdom. So Dr. Poitras, thank you so much. And there's so much that we barely scratched the surface of. We'd love to interview you um, and or your wife, Diane, um, again, at some point in the near future. Well, I've enjoyed the time with you. And I ask it. this would be a blessing to those who hear. Uh, we do have uh, a great challenge before us, simply in serving God with our heart, but then also in, in, uh, being instrumental and others coming to serve him. Mm. And would you just do our listeners the favor of refreshing their memory as to how they can find out more about what you've written, um, your articles, the website that you maintain with Dr. John Frame as well? Well, there is a website. Its uh, name is Frame and then a hyphen Poitras, P-O-Y-T-H-R-E-S-S dot org. If they go there, there's a bibliographies of both 
John Frame and me and a lot of articles and uh, books that can be freely downloaded. Wonderful. And <laughs> one of the downsides of the fact that you and Dr. Frame write together on the same website is if I'm reading on that website and I, I lose track, I uh, start conflating the articles together and forgetting whether you wrote it or whether Dr. Frame wrote it. Uh, Scott, what do you think? Maybe you and I should launch DunfordCokeman.org. <laughs> that almost seems uh, sacrilegious <laughs> by comparing the two. But uh, we are so glad uh, for your work and for Dr. Frame's work. Uh, yeah, Alex and I would probably just be a parody <laughs> of that but uh we're so thankful (laughs) to have you on our show and thank you for using the gifts that god's given you so so effectively for the for the kingdom and uh, i pray this will be a a blessing to a lot of people so yes thank you once again if you want to get more great content on theology missions and practice go to missionspodcast.com and while you're there subscribe in itunes google play or your favorite listening platform and please give us an honest review and a five-star rating and don't forget to be sending your questions to alex at missionspodcast.com until next time thank you for joining us